Hello, I'm Robert Lash, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Before we start, I'd like to thank my colleague Aaron Lore for letting me steal today's podcast from him. Today, I'm particularly excited because we'll be speaking with Dr. Griffin Rogers, the director of the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Diseases, or NIDDK, and his colleague, Dr. William Cephalou, who is the director of NIDDK's Division of Diabetes, Endocrinology, and Metabolic Diseases. We'll be talking with them about the Institute's mission, Dr. Cephalou's first months on the job, and NIDDK's interactions with groups like the Endocrine Society. Griff, I'd like to start with you. You've been in a leadership position at DDK since 2001. Will, on the other hand, joined about five months ago. What was the first piece of advice you gave Will when he moved to NIH? Don't drown uh, (laughs) as you drink from a water hose. And there are extremely nice and dedicated staff that you're inheriting. And so we really want you to keep up the progress, tremendous progress that your predecessor uh, put before you. And he's really been equal to the task and has done an exceptional job thus far. And Will, you really did come into an institution that had been successfully run for many years uh, by your predecessor. Um, What was it like when you first came on board? Drinking from the fire. (laughs) (laughs) So it was good advice. It was good advice. Mm -hmm. And as Griff stated, we have an incredibly dedicated and talented staff. And the first order of business is to make sure that we continue that innovation, but also to plan for the future. Griff, uh, although this is an endocrinology podcast, I, for personal reasons, I would love to hear a little more about the work you've been doing lately in sickle cell disease. I haven't been able to do as much as I have in previous years because of uh, the administrative post, but the team uh, that I work with over in Building 10, our clinical center, in joint work with the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive Diseases, is really focused on a number of efforts uh, to both treat and potentially cure sickle cell disease and develop better ways to manage some of the complications of sickle cell disease. Our most recent work has has focused on developing what are called non-myeloablative bone marrow transplants in these patients, largely adult patients, and that has actually turned out to be quite successful with about a 90% overall survival, cure rate, and many of these patients, I would say, not only are they cured of their disease, but they have been taken off of all of their immunosuppressive therapy, which is often needed when one receives a bone marrow transplant from a family member. You have a long history of work in this area, hydroxyurea, and now the stem cell transplants. When you look back, what's it like to think when you first started in this field and where we are right now? Well, it it has been quite gratifying. And this is really one of the advantages of being at the uh, NIH when one can turn one's vision into a potential reality. Uh, I got into this field because as a high school student, I had uh, three very close friends who died with sickle cell disease, one while I was still in high school and two later in college. And at that time, there was very little to do in terms of sickle cell disease in the late 70s, early 80s, except for pain medicines, blood transfusions occasionally, 
and the use of uh, antibiotics if there was an obvious infection. And uh, the work that we have uh, done in the clinical center at the NIH has spurred on larger controlled clinical trials, which showed efficacy and the, the uh, FDA approval of the first uh, drug, hydroxyurea, that you mentioned. Now, actually, even for children with the disease, uh, and the more recent work on bone marrow transplant, my current work on gene therapy, I would wish I could look back and, and speak again to those three friends and yeah. tell them this is what we have available. Wow, that's an amazing story. And it points to the potential power and, uh, of being a physician scientist and taking work from the bench to the bedside. But lately, being a physician scientist, particularly in the field of endocrinology, has not been that appealing a career. Physician scientist programs are having trouble recruiting. number of spots are declining. I wonder if either of you would like to speak about that challenge and what we can do about it. First of all, uh, I think we have a strong emphasis here in NIDDK to train physician scientists. <clears throat> we have a broad portfolio to get physicians interested starting from medical student programs to graduate students to early stage investigators, that we have different programs now to make it attractive through our centers for physician scientists to be rewarded for pilot feasibility programs to continue their research. So I think there is an interest not only in physician scientists, but diversifying the workforce, racial, ethnic, gender, and diversity in science. So I think we've actually done a pretty good job through our institutional programs through our, our postgraduate programs, uh, offering those type programs to physician scientists. That's great. And as someone who's personally benefited from the emphasis on that, and during my own days uh, here at the NIH, I can't say how much those opportunities mean to young investigators. Well, actually, I started that way also. My funding through our training grants through the NIH and career development awards, I would say I probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for NIH funding early in my career. Speaking of training, Griff, in addition to your medical training, soon after you became a leadership at DDK, you went and got an MBA. Uh, MBAs are more and more common among medical professionals. And I was wondering if you could talk about why you decided to do that and how you think it has affected your ability as a leader. Well, one of the, the things, uh, uh, again, uh, sort of the benefit of being here is that uh, one gets noticed. And, and one of the things that I, I got noticed for was the, some of my work in both the basic and, and the clinical side. And my previous scientific director in the intramural program became the director of NIDDK in the late 90s. And as his job was then open and he had to appoint the director, the next scientific director, he really asked me, would you be interested in my previous job or potentially coming over? to the dark side, the administration, <laughs> and potentially becoming my deputy director, which I did in 2001. And as you probably know, in medical school, we don't learn accounting or finance or strategic planning or, or any of these. And so I'd be very happy to do that. But at the time, Johns Hopkins University was developing a unique program in their business school. It was called the Business of Medicine and Science. And a lot of the people who were in medicine at the time were thinking about making a career move in my circumstance, I thought that this could be an enhancement and allowed me to sort of look at the business of running a large institute and balance sheets and the utility of things. So this was a, 
the full MBA program. And I have to say that it was focused through the, the lens of someone in a large, complex organization like this, or a hospital, or pharmaceutical, or biotech company. And so I learned quite a bit, which I was able to apply day one coming into this administrative role. It's been quite effective. And as you say, a number of other schools are now starting and a number of physicians are taking up this opportunity. Speaking of new challenges and new opportunities, Will, you recently made a move probably about a third of the way around the Beltway uh, from the American Diabetes Association to uh, joining uh, Griff here at NIH. Can you talk a little bit about what the opportunities that NIH provided that inspired you to make this change? Well, the real reason I made this change is for the meaningful work. I mean, the opportunity here to uh, direct research trials toward addressing chronic diseases in the nation is an opportunity that uh, one only gets once in a lifetime. So I think the program directors here really understand that. That's why they're here. And that was the opportunity to really make a difference in research in the country in diabetes and endocrine metabolic disease. You've been a national leader in areas of diabetes and obesity for a good part of your career. Now that you have a chance to make a difference on a national level, what new priorities are you thinking about? Where do you want to take diabetes and obesity research over the next few years? Well, particularly for diabetes, and we talk about type 2 diabetes, the understanding that this is a heterogeneous disease, that there are different presentations. And one of the things that we want to focus on is understanding the differences, not only between youth and adolescents with type 2 and adults with type 2, but understanding the differences between adults with type 2 and the elderly. And uh, again, this gets back to understanding how the disease is presented so we can prescribe the best therapies. Currently, today, our guidelines we prescribe a drug or drugs based on population means. It may work for the population as a whole, but we know there are individual differences. And understanding those individual differences are going to hold the key to the best therapy, the so-called precision medicine, the most appropriate therapy for the most appropriate patient at the most appropriate time. And so there, there are a lot of differences within the adult population that we really have to understand. And I think that's the real challenge for the next 5, 10, perhaps 15 years is understanding those differences. You touched on the problem of diabetes among young people. Could you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. And some of the studies that have been done at NIH, NIDDK, the Today and the Rise study, has shown that this is really a different disease. It's a different presentation. Once the children have this disease, it progresses at a greater rate. There are greater complications. And so this is a challenge knowing that it, the population for type 2 in youth and adolescents is only increasing. So we have to do a better job understanding who's at higher risk, come up with better interventions, because currently we know that it is a different disease from, let's say, an individual in the 40s and 50s. So we're trying now to understand who's at greater risk, and after that, decide on the best intervention. So we have a little work ahead of us for youth and adolescents. How about obesity? What kind of work are you thinking about as the next stage in obesity research and uh, clinical care for patients with obesity? Well, it's hard to tease apart obesity and type 2 diabetes, knowing that obesity is one of the major factors in progression of type 2 diabetes. And we've had prevention trials. We know how actually to 
prevent or delay type 2, we can do this in academic centers. You can do this with intensive intervention. The real question is for as obesity or management of type 2 is how are the findings in academic centers of research been translated to the population? And I think that is really one of the big successes of NIH and IDDK is our diabetes prevention program to show that this can be prevented in academic institutions and now translated in work that the CDC is doing. So I think the biggest challenge there is trying to understand how to take the findings that we've learned in randomized controlled trials and implement them given the hurdles in the community. Griff, I'd like to turn now to a, a different topic, advocacy. NIH is um, funded each year uh, from Congress and through the executive uh, branch. And there are a lot of people out there working on behalf of NIH in support of the mission. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role that uh, advocates like the Endocrine Society play in their support of NIH. I think uh, societies such as the Endocrine Society and others have really done an outstanding job. Of course, as a, a member of Health and Human Services, of course, we can't advocate Particularly, right. this is why it's so important to have groups and friends who really express the strong desire on their role, particularly in areas that overlap with our mission, about the importance of ongoing support uh, for these vital research missives in basic science and translational science and clinical sciences. As I said, the uh, diabetes, just as an example of one of the things that our missions uh, intersect, is obviously a very important disease. It's common, it's chronic, it's costly, and it's quite consequential. And if you look at the numbers, it's increasing greatly, and it really is making a substantial dent to the overall spending power of the U.S. And I understand that one in every three Medicare dollars, for example, wow. is expended mm -hmm in the care and provision of care for people with diabetes. Uh, and so if we're able to change that, those cost curves, it's going to be with interventions and prevention efforts of the type that Dr. Sufferly just mentioned and others. And that's why I think the advocacy is, is so vitally important. We've been lucky and fortunate in the last several years to benefit from the increasing funding uh, in this uh, regard. But we still have a great projects and programs uh, that after review get very good scores but are left on the table because we're unable to fund them. And so ongoing efforts, I think, are, are vitally important. In addition to the diabetes work that each of you has spoken about, could you talk a little bit about other endocrine initiatives uh, in NIDDK? Some of the other initiatives uh, gets back to understanding a lot of the associations and the pathophysiology, we're beginning to understand now that there are other conditions that are associated with diabetes. For example, uh, a wonderful workshop that we had recently on pancreatitis and understanding the exocrine function versus the interplay with the endocrine function. And so many times as investigators, we work in our own little silos. And this workshop just recently showed one prime example how crossing the disciplines and something as simple as the pancreas and exocrine versus endocrine function is so interrelated. We don't understand the relationship between pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer and diabetes, but there are associations. So those are some of the initiatives that I think would 
bridge particular disciplines moving forward. I think the understanding of obesity and some of the liver abnormalities in the NASH is of great importance. Uh, we have to understand the association between obesity, type 2, cognition, cancer. These are still all questions that expand beyond just diabetes per se. And I would just add, of course, uh, recently it's been announced the very first FDA-approved drug for the treatment of thyroid eye disease. Right. Uh, and, and so there are a number of things that we are very much engaged in uh, related to diseases of the pancreas and, and other hormones. Some people consider actually the microbiome, the 100 trillion germs that you dine with each time you eat a meal, <laughs> may have critical endocrine functions. And that's something that we've been really at the forefront of, of working on. A lot of research in a lot of different fields. There are so many opportunities for young people today. I was wondering if you could each give your advice to endocrine trainees as they think about what direction they want to go in, how they want to build their careers. So first, let me say, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do the exact same thing. Uh, and the first advice I would give someone who's interested in research is find a topic that you're incredibly interested in. Secondly, I think uh, to find a mentor who can be as critical as possible because having a mentor who's actually going to critique your direction and provide really substantial and relevant comments is important because that guides you and then you have to put in the work. So find an area of interest, find someone that can be very critical but guide you and give you advice, and then you have to put in the work, but it's a very rewarding field. And I wouldn't have done it any differently. And the job satisfaction is just fantastic at the average. Griff, do you want to add anything? I really couldn't say it any better. I think that uh, in this particular field, it really is an exciting time in research and that uh, we're beginning to learn more about the multiple components contributing to the development and expression of a host of diseases not only the person's own genetic makeup, but the effects of the gene and environment. And by environment, I mean very many facets of the environment, starting actually in the intrauterine uh, space. We know that, for example, propensity to diabetes may first originate mm -hmm. in mothers with gestational diabetes, and that is really a major effort. And so there's a great many questions that need to be resolved uh, and there are many opportunities for more effective therapies. And we really need people who, in a sense, are bilingual. They've actually trained in medicine on the one hand, and they're very facile with basic concepts associated with omics, transcriptomics, genomics, metabolomics, other omics that haven't been invented yet, maybe only defined <laughs> by economics. Uh, so this is a great time for for those, those uh, people with uh, such talent and, and hard work ethic. That's the exciting part, is that uh, understanding what Griff said about, you do understand the basic biology, uh, genetics, genomics, uh, proteomics, metabolomics, but really understanding the interplay of the environment, uh, sleep, stress, not that we have any of that. <laughs> sleep or stress? <laughs> sleep, stress, diet, smoking history, family history, that interplay between the environment and what happens at the physiome is going to be the important thing in dictating therapies moving forward. As I stated, 
this is going to be incredibly important as far as precision medicine, personalized medicine, and I think that's the real excitement moving forward. Well, that's I think is a perfect introduction to talking a little bit about NIDDK strategic plan. NIDDK has begun to develop an institute-wide uh, strategic plan. We've previously focused on disease-specific strategic plans, for example, our diabetes research and obesity research plans. But this new effort uh, is to develop an overarching plan that will complement those disease-specific uh, efforts. And through the strategic plan, we'll aim to present a broad vision uh, for the future, demonstrate the value of NIDDK research now and going forward. Uh, this effort aligns with the 21st Century Cure Act, uh, which requires that all NIH institutes and centers prepare uh, such a strategic plan. It's also consistent with uh, NIH-wide efforts. And so our new NIDDK strategic plan will be over about a five-year horizon. Importantly, we view this opportunity to reach out to the research community, to scientific societies and health advocacy organizations, people who are at risk for the disease within our mission and many other uh, with an interest in our institute's research. And from all of these stakeholders, we hope to gain innovative ideas for future research directions and perspectives on scientific opportunities and challenges. We will have many opportunities for societies such as the Endocrine Society and its members to weigh in and give us their perspective we will also be releasing a request for ideas, or RFI, in the spring of this year to solicit broad input uh, over a two-month public comment period. And we hope that the Endocrine Society sends uh, its ideas in for this RFIs. Further down the road, this, our draft will be posted uh, on our website, and at that point, we'll hope to receive additional public comment. And the final strategic plan just to give you an idea of the timeline, we hope will be released uh, in the fall of 2021. Any closing thoughts you'd like to uh, have for the endocrine community at large? Well, for the division right now, we want to make sure, again, we are taking an assessment. I, I'm very happy with the progress that has been made in diabetes and endocrine metabolic diseases and want to make sure we can move forward from there. As I said, we have a very skilled workforce with great expertise. I want to make sure that we continue to move forward to address some of the challenges moving forward. And we've stated some of those challenges, understanding some of the heterogeneity disease, continue some of our programs in type 1 diabetes, some of the challenges there, obesity, and venture out. We know that there are other complications of diabetes that we need to address, such as cardiovascular complications, understanding the association with some of the other disease states. So it's an exciting time right now. And... Uh, Hopefully, in three to five years from now, we'll have uh, moved forward with our strategic plan along the major NIH plan. I want to thank both of you so much for being on today's podcast. It's been great having the opportunity to speak with you and to learn so much more about what's been going on in NIDDK. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for this episode. I want to thank Dr. Griffin Rogers and Dr. William Cephalou, and I want to thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. If you'd like to hear more, check us out at endocrine.org slash podcast or Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying these, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple. And if you want to get in touch with us, 
please send us an email at podcast at endocrine.org. Thanks again. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.